This is TechSnap, episode 370. Welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We recorded this episode on May 31st, 2018. It's brought to you by our three great sponsors, Ting, IX Systems, and DigitalOcean. I'll tell you more about those sponsors as this show goes on. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is my co-host, the admin, the presenter, and the engineer. It's Mr. Payne. Mr. Wes Payne. Hello, Wes. Hello, Chris. Wes, it is good to be connected with you from Kalamath Falls this week. And we've got a great batch of warm-up stories. And then we're going to get into a news item that I think a lot of you have heard about, but maybe haven't gotten the nitty-gritty details. So let's kick it off with a story that really brought a smile to my face. Because, of course, this was coming. Computer scientists have now invented a way to hide secret messages in ordinary text by imperceptibly changing the shapes of letters yeah this new technique called font code works with all kinds of common font families you're probably already using things like times roman helvetica you've you've heard of them it's also compatible with most word processing software word LibreOffice, and all those other popular image manipulation programs like photoshop now there's definitely some obvious applications for something like this especially in the world of espionage but the inventors actually suggest some more practical uses, especially for things like embedding metadata into texts, kind of like watermarking. Hmm. Yeah, I could definitely see it being used for watermarking in a way that wasn't uh, tacky, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. You don't have to have it there, but if you need to prove fidelity of an image, you have that available to you. Maybe another application is legal documents. You could, you could detect a document even when printed on paper and detect if it's been tampered with. Now, one thing that jumped to my mind is... QR codes, right? Like we're already using something sort of similar to, tr- to try to, to have things on printed documents to, to embed information. Font code could be a much nicer alternative to QR codes. So hmm. you, in the future, if you had an app that, that had font code support built into it, you could snap a photo of, let's say, like a poster you found out in the world with this embedded meta- metadata, and then it could, you know, have a link that contained, the app would open it up. Ideally, since this is TechSnap, ideally that app would do some sort of a, you know, have, it would have some sort of security there, a whitelist or a very clear prompt showing the, U- the URL, but then it could open that up. It could take you to a YouTube video, stuff that we're already doing with QR codes, except QR codes are so tacky. This might be pretty slick. How does this magic work? Well, font code embeds data into text using tiny perturbations of components of letters. Things like adjusting the width of strokes, changing the height of ascenders or descenders, or tightening or loosening the curves and serifs, or the bowls of letters like O, P, and B. Then they've trained a convolutional neural network to recognize those perturbations and recover the embedded metadata. What's neat about this approach is that the amount of information font code can hide is limited only by the number of letters on which it acts. So, you know, the more area you have, that scales up exactly with the amount of metadata you can embed. Oh, interesting. So that what strikes me about that is you could be conveying one set of information to human observers and another set of information to a robotic observer, but it's the same data. It's the same display. It's two different perceptions of information, though. Yeah, right. It, it creates a second dimension, if you will. What struck me reading this as well is, is 
we're we're already seeing kind of an explosion of AR technology. And if you're wearing something like Google Glass or you're using a phone to to view things, suddenly the world could be much richer. You have one level for just regular humans and then a second level that has all kinds of additional information you might need in such an environment. Yeah, without having to compromise the non-augmented experience. Exactly. Another interesting aspect of font code is it can not only embed the messages in text, but it could also encrypt them. If users could agree on a private key that can specify the order in which the hidden letters are read, boom, there you go. That's the system. Sure. So if ahead of time you and I agree that things are going to be in this shape or this order, we essentially have created a key. And then as long as we've both agreed and then I encode my message to that uh, to that standard, whatever that spec, it's it's essentially a form of encryption. Yeah, I could read it, but to other people, it, it would just be gibberish. What makes that even more useful is that the inventors say this technique is one of the first to work independently of document type. It can also retain the secret information when an image or document is printed or converted to another file type because it's it's actually just modifying, you know, it's modifying the characters here. So as long as that aspect is preserved, the rest doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's a PDF. It doesn't matter if it's a Word document. It doesn't matter if it's a piece of paper that you printed on your local printer. The researchers, of course are patenting this. (laughs) And they say they want to move it to other languages beyond English as well. Yeah, it's in that stage where definitely an interesting proof of concept seems like it's fairly practical. How well is this neural network trained? What's the what's the likelihood this gets that gets licensed or that we see it in consumer apps in the future? I don't know, give it six to 12 months. And now our next story, the Git community has disclosed an industry wide security vulnerability in Git that can lead to arbitrary code execution. It's CVE 2018-11235. What's what's going on here? I know, right? The technical details, but I'm sure some of our audience want to go look this up immediately. I know I did. What's going on here? Well, a remote repository can contain a definition for a sub-module. Maybe you haven't used Git sub-modules before, but there's frequently times where you end up some sort of vendoring another repo. You want to have another repo embedded within your repo, it can, it can help, especially if you're, you're using a bunch of components when you're trying to build software, you want to have better control over modularization, or let's say you're in a big enterprise and you, you, you want to pull down some code from, from the world, but make it simple, not have a, to make a big script to pull all of your various source files. So that, those are some of the reasons you might use a submodule. When a repository contains a definition for a submodule, it can also bundle that submodule's repository data checked into the parent repository as a folder. Then, when you recursively clone this repository, which means you know you want to you clone the repository and you want to go recursively check out all the submodules contained in the repository, mm-hmm. Git will first check out the parent repository into your working directory. Then it prepares to clone the submodule. It then realizes that it, it doesn't have to do the clone because you've already embedded the submodule in there. It, it's already right there on the disk since it was checked out when you got the parent. Git then skips doing the fetch step and just checks out the submodule using the repository that it already has on the disk. Sounds all well and good, right? But the problem here is that when you do a Git clone on a repository, there's actually some security considerations already in place. Git clone intentionally skips basically a lot of extra data you don't need and would be a bad idea for you to have. This includes stuff like the contents of the .git slash config file and especially things like hooks, which are scripts that will be run at a certain point within the Git workflow. A common one is the post-checkout hook, which runs anytime Git checks files out from the working directory. This is used a ton for, you know, especially on things like GitLab or GitHub. 
You want to make sure enforce standards, run a bunch of CI jobs, things like that. This stuff's not cloned from the remote server because basically it would it would open up a dangerous vulnerability. The remote server is providing you code in this case that you would then just execute on your computer. You, wise tech snap and listener, you know that's a bad idea. Unfortunately, when you have submodules configured in this exact way, and when this vulnerability is impacting your version of Git, that's exactly what happens. Remote code execution on your machine from the from the Git remote. So since the submodules repository is checked into the parent repository, it's never actually cloned. So that that clone code that has those security considerations in place, it's not run. So the submodule repository can actually just have all those hooks configured and Git will happily run them. So the way this works is if you recursively clone a carefully crafted malicious parent repository, it first checks out the parent, then it reads the submodules checked in repository in order to write the submodule to the working directory. And then finally, again, because you're not running the clone code, it executes any post-checkout hooks that are configured in the submodules checked in repository. That is where a malicious attacker could embed all kinds of dangerous functionality. Now, in this case, you would just run a command as your user, but if you've done something dangerous, like run this as root, or have passwordless sudo, or already, you know, you've just recently entered a sudo command, this can be pretty dangerous. Yeah, and I could still see there's valuable information in a user's home directory, including config files and .ssh directories and things like that, that would still, you'd want to have protected, and this would have access to. Now, an important point here is just, you know, just cloning one of these repositories isn't enough to trigger this vulnerability. You actually do need to go interact with the submodules running something like git clone dash dash recurse submodules or or similar equivalent commands. And what's actually happening is the malicious attacker has crafted their .git modules file. And then when, when you run that command, the submodule names... Uh, which is which is a Git term, are obtained from this file and then appended to an environmental variable. Unfortunately, they didn't check and dot dot slash is actually allowed when you do that. And so that that's really where the vulnerability happens. You're appending to your git dir slash modules dot dot slash. That goes back up into your working directory. And then that lets the post checkout hooks from the submodule get executed which by ta- bypasses the intended design in which hooks are never obtained from the remote server. Hmm. So basically that means the fix is actually pretty simple. Submodules folder names are now examined more closely by Git clients. So they can no longer contain dot dot, and they cannot be symbolic links so that they must be within the dot Git repository folder and not in the actual repository's working directory. After some updates, the latest versions of Git will now just simply refuse to work with repositories that contain a submodule configuration like this. And a lot of the effort here has really been fixed on the remote end. So people hosting Git repositories for you, places like GitLab, GitHub, they will also just simply refuse to let you upload them. Well, GDPR Watch is officially kicked off here at the TechSnap program, and we have just a quick one. Ghostry really stepped in it when they were trying to do the same thing that all of the other service providers in the world were doing, and that was emailing you about their updated privacy policy. You're probably already seeing a flood of those emails in your inbox, and Ghostry was (laughs) piling on. Here's what happened. They sent out an email that resulted in just the exposure of account holders' email addresses to other Ghostery account holders and Ghostery users. Now, how did that happen? Well, they recently decided to stop using a third-party email automation platform. In an effort to be more secure, ironically, they wanted to manage user account emails 
in their own system so that they can fully monitor and control data practices surrounding them. Okay, sounds reasonable. Unfortunately, due to a technical issue between Ghostery and the email sending tool they were using, when they sent this GDPR notification email, it was supposed to be a single email to each recipient. Instead, it was sent to the entire batch of users. All of the email addresses simply put right on the two line. Therefore, anyone receiving the email could see all the recipients also receiving the email. Boy, that is the worst. It's the most basic, simple mistake to be made. Now, I'm sure there was some sort of UI in the way that made this more obfuscated, but still, it's pretty embarrassing. It sure is. How did they handle it? Well, once they realized it was happening, they immediately stopped sending out additional emails and stopped the process for all future emails. Luckily, it didn't affect all account holders. You were only affected if you were an account holder and you received one of these GDPR emails on Friday, May 25th, 2018. If you're a Ghostery user without an account, you were not affected. Uh, And especially if you've ever given your email to Ghostery, well, you're fine. What is Ghostery doing after this incident? Well, first of all, they're reporting the incident as is mandated by the GDPR. They've also already terminated the email distribution, to quote them, and they say they've already determined what went wrong. In the end, it was pretty much simply just human error. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's, it's one of those things that seems like a human error. I think the language they're using here is interesting. They're throwing in that word terminated, which you often associate with a human error. Oh, when that mistake is made, they terminate the employee that made the mistake. But that's not what they're terminating. They're terminating the distribution. Like they're killing that email list that they set up? Is that what they're saying? I think so. Or maybe uh, they're going to go back and try to rework exactly how they've configured their new in-house emailing system. I imagine they're you know, contracting with some third-party API and have some in-house scripts that, that use that API to send emails. So probably there's some rework there. Maybe some more eyes go on there before any more emails get sent. They're also pointing out that they have some clear instructions on how to opt out of future emails if you don't want those, or if you just want to permanently de- delete all your user data over at Ghostery, you can make a request to them and they'll do that too. Yeah, and they also say if you just want to opt out of all updates from us ever, just just delete your account. Just, just delete your account. Simple <laughs> enough. TechSnap.ting.com. It's smarter than unlimited. If you use less, you pay less. The average Ting bill is $23 per phone per month. And if you go to TechSnap.ting.com, you'll get $25 off a Ting device. Or if you bring a device, they'll give you $25 in service credit. Now, if you recall, I just said it's $23 per month per phone on average. So that means you'll get more than your first month covered. And they give you a great control panel to see your usage wherever you're at from one spot. On your phone, on the web, it's all the same. Great login system, simple, but you can take complete control. And one of the great things about Ting is they communicate clearly with their customer base. And I've been a Ting customer for more than four years now, and I really have come to appreciate that. And they're posting an update on their routers, if you have Ting Fiber Internet, that it's related to the VPN filter malware that we'll be talking about in the TechSnap program. So they have a blog post about that that is relevant to you. But get started by going to techsnap.ting.com. You can go check out the devices directly from Ting. Bring your own. They have a CDMA and a GSM network. You pick what works best for you. TechSnap.Ting.com The TechSnap program continues to track interesting bug bounty stories. And this week, we found one that's the case of an 18-year-old student researcher who had a surprise $36,000 check from Google. 
The story began when the researcher gained access to Google App Engine's restricted non-production environment. And in that environment, found it was possible to rummage around in the platform's internal and hidden APIs. If you're not familiar with Google's App Engine offering, uh, think of it sort of like Elastic Beanstalk on AWS. It's it's in that sort of serverless domain where you really are pretty far away from the infrastructure. They have a number of different supported programming languages and runtimes, so you can just you know maybe you're writing a, a Node application, you write that, package it up in a zip file or similar, upload it to Google. They take care of the rest. They provision it on servers. They manage all the dependencies and installing the code on those servers for you. They manage all the you know auto scaling, load balancers, ingress, all that stuff. So it's pretty it's pretty hands-off and used by a lot of people, especially developers who are just trying to rapidly prototype and launch applications in the cloud. Inside App Engine's deployment environment, the vulnerability turned out to be in just one service known as App Config Service. This was significant because commands sent to it allowed the researcher to set internal settings, such as the allowed email senders, the app's service account ID, that sounds important, ignore any quota restrictions, and set the app as a super app. The researcher noted that he didn't know what a super app was, but hey, it sounds super. It also gave access to file Google 3 access. Uh, The researcher wasn't quite sure about that either, but speculated this was part of Piper and basically contained a bunch of Google resources that are normally only internally accessible. Yeah, it sounds like he got access to some really secret behind-the-scenes stuff that Google doesn't want out there, stuff that's really just tools for them. But my favorite part to this story is when someone at Google reviewed his disclosure, they realized what a massive finding this was, and they bumped up the severity, which means he got a bigger payout. Yeah, he had originally started out this bug report as something like, oh, hey, look, I can access some sort of internal services. And so it was pretty pretty low priority, sort of just see some extra metadata. Uh, Once he discovered that he could actually change settings on some, you know, on his account details, on some settings normally a user wouldn't be able to touch, they were like, oh, hey, please stop. You might break things. What's also interesting here is that they've really, they've kind of gone above and beyond. After asking him to stop, they, they also noted that You know, they'll give him credit for not just what you've actually done, but what you could have done if you'd had time, if you'd wanted to, if you didn't stop politely. So that's where, you know, after reporting it, after waiting to hear back, he finally gets an email and was awarded this $36,337. It's so high because they gave him, you know, they, they treated this as remote code execution. He asked one of the Googlers in the reward panel about it, and they basically told him that because of the way it works internally, don't ask too many questions, this is an RCE. They also added on an extra 5K. Normally they pay like 31,000 for RCE bugs uh, because there was a lesser bug that they, they also separated out here and included in the payout. Yeah, it seems like it was a kind of a good guy Google move there, although I think there was probably the component of if you stop now and you sit on this for a while and let us control this message and let us get this stuff fixed, you get this much money. Uh, because they do say, please stop. And if you're going to please stop and not go any further, we'll, roar, we'll we will reward you as if you could have gone further, which to me is sort of like a signaling like you don't, you can stop now. You don't need to worry. We'll pay you. Just thank you very much. And there's really nothing wrong with that. And I think it's encouraging and it might also sort of be their best marketing move possible to signal to other potential researchers that if you play ball with Google, they're going to reward you for it. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me anyway that that they're taking this seriously, that their bug 
bounty program and panel and analysis is is healthy and it's not an adversarial process. It's really one of like, thank you for improving our product. Thank you for finding this dangerous vulnerability. Don't break our things and uh, we'll be fair to you. A 40-year-old protocol is surprising everyone this week and even causing the Department of Homeland Security to release warning messages that this protocol could be used to track user locations and communications. The protocol we're talking about here is SS7, short for Signaling System Number 7, and it's the routing protocol that allows cell phone users and landline users to basically make connections. And then it's especially interesting in this case because it's it's used anytime cell phones connect from different networks, different cell towers, and travel throughout the world. There's little built-in security and basically no way for carriers to verify one another. So SS7 has always posed a potential hole that people with access could exploit to track the real-time location of individual users. In recent years, the threat has expanded almost exponentially, in part because the number of companies with access to SS7 has grown from a handful to thousands. Another key reason? Hackers can now abuse the routing protocol not just to geolocate people, but in many cases, to intercept text messages and voice calls. Why are we talking about this now? Well, in a letter Senator Ron Wyden received last week, Department of Homeland Security officials warned that nefarious actors may have exploited SS7 to target the communications of American citizens. Additionally, one of the major wireless carriers informed Senator Wyden's office that they had reported an SS7 breach in which customer data was accessed to two law enforcement officials through the government's Customer Proprietary Network Information Reporting Portal. Now, it's not clear if the DHS warning involving nefarious actors is actually related to that SS7 breach. It's also unknown how many customers are affected, or whether the nefarious actors that the DHS warned of work on behalf of a nation-sponsored espionage operation, or if they're just part of a profit-motivated crime network. Sure. I mean, this sounds like something that's a worldwide issue because it's the very protocol that cellular providers are using to hand off between networks and towers. So it's something that has to be well-established, well-supported across handsets and cell networks, and something that works around the world. That's the exact kind of recipe that you get for something that sticks around much, much longer than it should. Often with these kinds of things, we see these kind of vulnerabilities. But I don't think any of this is new. I I seem to recall having past conversations about this this very problem. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Back in 2016, U.S. Representative Ted Liu of California got a vivid demonstration of this. He gave reporters from CBS News permission to abuse their access to the routing protocol. Yeah, that's right. They have access to it. To record his calls and monitor his movements, all they needed was his public 10-digit phone number. A year after that, thieves used SS7 to bypass two-factor authentication. Hey, Chris, I know how you love that SMS two-factor. Mm-hmm. They bypassed that authentication used by banks to prevent unauthorized withdrawals from online accounts. So that hack allowed the attackers to intercept one-time passwords before they could be received by the intended bank customers. It's sort of fascinating. This story is coming out right now when there's been a recent New York Times report uh, about Securus and uh, some of the other companies that are selling customer location information. And I covered it on Tech Talk Today recently. And it's there's even a portal where you can go in and put your own information in and it'll, it'll locate you, not based on the GPS information on your phone, but just via cellular triangulation from the cell towers that you've talked to. And perhaps it is SS7 or something that they're using to track that. Or it could just be a data feed directly from the providers. I don't know. 
one thing you might want to might want to install if you're interested in this stuff is an app by security research labs known as Snoop Snitch. It, it does a lot of neat things, some of which like including analyzing your phone's firmware for installed or missing Android security patches. And if you have a compatibly rooted phone, it can do stuff like warn you about threats from fake base stations, user tracking, and these kinds of SS7 attacks. You might be wondering, like, like, why is this so easy? How does it all work? What is SS7? If you're familiar with SIP, SIP, SIP is used to set up VoIP calls. So it's the signaling layer, and it's it's for IP networks, so packet switch networks. And in, in that sense, it's in-band. I send some SIP signals to you, Chris. You respond. If we're able to set up, establish a call, then we switch over to UDP and send RTP media between us. So SS7 is analogous in some ways and accomplishes some of those same goals, but it's older and it's for the for the PSTN, the publicly switched telephone network, which is a circuit switched network. It's also out of band. So there's separate SS7 connections. You have usually like they're like 64K links between carriers. You then signal over those connections to then basically set up a circuit between callers. So once that circuit is set up, the phone call can can communicate and all the signaling happens on this separate SS7 signaling channel. Now, traditionally, there haven't been that many carriers, right? There's not that many people with access to this, not that many trying to make make connections in this network. A lot of times connections between carriers are, are pretty specific anyway. There's a lot of interop procedures that have to go on. It's something of an old boys network. So there hasn't been a lot of authentication or encryption or security built into the protocol. You've already established the connection. You're paying for a, a line between these companies so you don't have to worry about it. But as more organizations have access to it, the old outdated design of this protocol is it's really causing some problems. Some really big updates from Kubernetes just a couple of days ago. It looks like some new integrations and things that I am now just grasping to understand as it gets more and more complex. So I turn to the one, the only, Mr. Wes Payne to help me break it down. So if you've been following this closely, you may have seen one of their previous blog posts talking about Containerd bringing more container runtime options to Kubernetes. Well, with a bunch more development and hard work, that integration with Containerd is now generally available. You can use Containerd 1.1 as the container runtime for production Kubernetes clusters today. It works with Kubernetes 1.10 and above, supports all Kubernetes features, and the test coverage of Containerd integration on Google's cloud is now equivalent to Docker. So this is swapping out Docker in this Kubernetes chain for Containerd. Yes. So to get a little more into that, what, what's what's happening here? What is a container runtime? Well, a container runtime is, is the environment that actually runs the container. A lot of what's happening in the space in Kubernetes and similar is, is orchestration of containers above that. So in the context of Kubernetes, we really have a lot more choices for container run, runtimes. Kubernetes originally leveraged Docker for running containers as, you know, it was obviously sort of the de facto industry standard at the time. And it, it's still the default container runtime. After that, CoreOS jumped in the game with their Rocket runtime. So they actually, when they, when they wanted to make Kubernetes run on Rocket, they put forth a bunch of patches to Kubernetes so that you could use Rocket. Kubernetes was like, well, okay, great, we like that. But what if someone else comes along with this? We don't want to have to keep doing this. Instead, they decided to create an API to define calls to interface with the container runtime. Thus, the container runtime interface was born. And this is basically just like an abstraction layer so that, you know, you have a standard set of APIs between Kubernetes and whatever it's using to actually run the containers. 
So you can create your own container runtime. All you have to do is implement that interface. The other thing to know here is what is what is container D? Container D is is basically the core container part of Docker. Docker's gone through a number of different architectural refactorings and updates over the years. And just last year in 2017, they basically ripped out a bunch of the core of Docker and packaged it up as container D and then gave that to the Cloud Native Computing Foundation as an open source stewarded project there. And then the Docker engine just sits on top, has all the, you know, the special Docker stuff, but fundamentally just talks to container D. What this integration all is all about is having Kubernetes, instead of talking to Docker engine, which talks to container D, just talk to container D. And the, the architecture for this is, has sort of evolved a number of times, each time making the stack a little bit more stable and a little bit more efficient. So at first you had, you know, you had Kubernetes and it was talking to, talking over this interface, the CRI, to something called Docker Shim. Docker Shim then talked to Docker. Docker then talked internally to container D, which then actually ran containers. Alternatively, you had Kubernetes then, you know, as that evolved, Kubernetes then made their own wrapper around Containerd. So at the time, originally, Containerd didn't Im- implement this shared interface, the CRI. So Kubernetes created CRI-Containerd, which was just like a, a simple little shim that sat between Kubernetes and Containerd and, and spoke that interface and then translated it to the Containerd protocol. So in either case, there was at least one, maybe two different daemons sitting between Kubernetes and Containerd. What's changed here is that Containerd has grown native support for the CRI interface. Actually, actually, I mean, maybe that's slightly wrong. What, what it is is there's a plugin now supported within Containerd that implements that interface. So Kubernetes can talk directly to Containerd and have it manage all those plugins. In fact, that plugin is actually enabled by default. So instead of having to have two daemons talking over some remote procedure call, it's all built into the same thing. They're just native direct function calls. It's a lot faster. It's more stable. Less things can break. In all this refactoring, they've also managed to increase performance, right? So without having to have all these daemons sitting between, without having to make gRPC calls between the daemons, they were able to improve startup latency and resource usage. So, hey, that's definitely a win. Now, you may be wondering, does switching to Containerd mean I can't use Docker Engine anymore? The short answer, no. Docker Engine is built on top of Containerd. The next release of Docker Community Edition will actually use Containerd version 1.1. And of course, it will have this CRI plugin built in and enabled by default. This means users will have the option to continue using Docker Engine for other normal Docker purposes while also being able to configure Kubernetes to use the underlying container D that came with and is being used by Docker Engine. So you install one container D, Docker Engine talks to it, and Kubernetes talks to it. You don't have to have any replication. You don't have to have a bunch of shim layers. It's a lot cleaner. Furthermore, a Containerd namespace mechanism is being employed to guarantee that Kubernetes and Docker Engine won't see or have access to containers and images created by each other. That means they won't interfere with one another. So maybe you've got a node that's running Kubernetes, but you also want to add a couple sidecar applications, or you just need some other, you know, maybe you have like a uh, some some custom services you also need to run on that node, and you don't want to use Kubernetes for. You're just using Docker standard. You can do that, and you can be sure that those things won't conflict. Users won't see Kubernetes created containers with the Docker PS command, and users won't see Kubernetes pulled images with the Docker images command. Instead, there is a new tool, CRI CTL, which has a bunch of those commands built into it. Uh, 
Um, the nice thing about this is the CRI CTL will work with anything that implements the CRI interface, and it's specifically motivated to be used for debugging, for managing production Kubernetes clusters. So it doesn't do all the things that, that the Docker command does. If you've been running Kubernetes on Docker and you're just using Docker to sort of manage that local container control, yes, it works. Yes, Docker, you know, it can see a lot of the stuff that was happening, but you could also do dangerous things. Maybe you rename a container, maybe you delete something. CRCTL is really meant to be like just the debugging introspection stage and then the actual container management orchestration is handled by Kubernetes. But again, you still get the reuse of the underlying container D so you can have Kubernetes have its own namespace, Docker has its own namespace, and it all works with the same stack, the same daemon underneath. That's a great explanation, Wes. That actually makes it a lot more clear. Much more clear than the Kubernetes post did. So I appreciate that. You're keeping this straight for me. It's, you're my, this is the personal keep Chris straight segment on the TechSnap program now. <laughs> now, I should mention there's like, just to make it even more confusing, because the container runtime interface is, you know, a generic interface, there's also another runtime we should probably mention, and that's CRI-O. Uh, it's a lightweight container runtime that was basically, they took that interface spec and then made a daemon specifically for it. So this is a runtime designed explicitly for Kubernetes. You've got a ton of options. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. That's the landing page to go to IX and learn more about a company that's going to build a hardware solution for you. They're the only provider I buy from, and that's after years of trying all of them. There's lots of different ways IX can build something around open source technology for you. Now, we often talk about all of the really high-end systems. I want to talk a moment about really great, solid, stable virtualization. A solution based on IX system servers and TrueNAS, their unified storage appliance, provides a highly available, high performance, and full feature-rich infrastructure for mission-critical VMs. And TrueNAS provides freedom of choice. It supports VMware vSphere, Citrix Zen Server, Microsoft Hyper-V, and your open-source hypervisors like KVM and even Beehive. They've worked to make all of that work safely, securely, and reliably with TrueNAS. When you think of IX systems, you often think of ZFS. ZFS has really been one of the cornerstone technologies that IX systems has built so many incredible systems around. And they have a team at IX that's intimately familiar with, with ZFS. They work upstream with the OpenZFS project. And to that end, Michael Dexter recently posted on the IX blog visualizing ZFS performance, or for old time's sake, ZFS performance. This is a rundown of tools that are available to monitor all aspects of ZFS performance on your rig. Michael Dexter's their senior analyst, and uh, he's always got great write-ups on their blog. So no matter when you're listening to this episode, it's worth a visit to the IX Systems blog. Start by going to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. They have a white paper there that you could grab to help learn a little bit more about why they might be a great choice to go with. I encourage you to try out IX for your next infrastructure build. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. You may have seen the headlines that 500,000 home and small office routers around the world were compromised with sophisticated, potentially nation-state-backed malware. Well, that's a good headline, but your tech stack program likes to dig into the details, and Wes and I have been reading up, and there's some interesting things and maybe some things still to be learned about VPN Filter. A recent advisory from Cisco researchers have identified VPN Filter as a modular, multi-stage malware that works on a variety of consumer-grade routers made by Linksys, Microtik, Netgear, TP-Link, and on network attack storage devices from QNAP. It's one of the few pieces of Internet of Things malware that can actually survive a reboot. 
Infections in at least 54 countries have been slowly building since at least 2016, and the researchers have been monitoring them for several months. There's little doubt that whoever developed VPN filter is an advanced group. Stage 1 infects devices running BusyBox and Linux-based firmware. It's compiled for several different CPU architectures. The primary purpose is to locate an attacker-controlled server to receive more fully-featured second stage. It does this by downloading an image from photobucket.com and then extracting an IP address from six integer values that's encoded in the EXIF GPS latitude and longitude location. In the event that that photobucket download fails, stage one will instead try to download the image from a website simply known as toknowall.com. If even that fails, stage one opens a listener that waits for a specific trigger packet from the attackers. The listener checks its public IP and then stores it for later use. Stage one is the only stage that persists even after the infected device is restarted. To be a little more specific, that listener inspects all IPv4 packets with the SYN flag set, and then it checks that the destination IP matches whatever IP it had recorded when it, when it was first opened. It makes sure then that the packet has eight or more bytes, and then scans the data for a specific string of four hex characters. Those bytes directly after that marker are then interpreted as an IP address. Finally, it calls out to that IP address and tries to get stage two. Once it has received a payload, it confirms that that payload is at least 1,001 bytes and then executes. So in, in that way, you, you know, either first it tries to get from Photobucket, then it tries to get from this weird site to knowall.com, and finally failing that, it just sits and listens and waits for a specially crafted packet to go say, okay, those didn't work, go get your payload here. So the attackers have really taken great pains that if they get any access at all, they want to keep it. To make matters worse, once stage two has been loaded by any of those methods, turns out some versions of stage two also possess a self-destruct capability. So basically overwrites a critical portion of the device's firmware and then reboots, bricking your device. So not only are they abusing your connection for, you know, to spread malware, to be part of DDoS attacks, they also might just brick your firmware. This is a fascinating infection because it goes through lots of different types of efforts to try to maintain some level of control, even listening for that special packet. And it remains persistent after a reboot. And then it has this kill switch. So if you wanted to, your attack really could be to just brick 500,000 routers all over the internet. Yeah, right. I mean, it may be not advantageous to do so immediately. I'm sure they want to leverage these things, but it's an interesting out, you know, suddenly you think researchers on your tail, rather than let them, you know, try to gain access themselves, be able to try to reverse engineer what you've done. You can just cut that device off. It's off the net and useless. And then consumers are just damaged in the way. So it appears that a week or so ago, the FBI took over that command and control domain to knowall.com. This is commonly known as sinkholing. They basically took control of the command and control server, and it allowed them to monitor the IP addresses of infected devices that connect to that server, and then actually to prevent them from receiving malware or malicious instructions. The seizure of to knowall.com is, is a major coup because it closes a secondary channel and may also provide previously unavailable information that the FBI can actually use to begin, you know, either both helping the ISPs to try to identify infected users and then maybe to gain more information about the attackers behind this attack. So, you know, if you can get 
You can get Photobucket to take down their malicious upload. And now that they've seized the other domain, that goes a long way to helping, you know, helping prevent the spread of additional infections. Unfortunately, this sinkholing doesn't automatically stop VPN filter in its tracks. Assuming the attackers captured the IP addresses of all the devices they managed to infect with stage one, the attackers could still send those magic packets to those listeners and regain control of the devices. And, and part of the confusion here is that the FBI sent out a notice saying that, you know, consumers should be wary of this and that they should reboot their routers. Now, rebooting the router will clear stages two and three, but as we've just mentioned, stage one is persistent. So, there's less risk now of actually, you know, getting stage two or stage three reinfected, but you're just having to hope that those attackers don't have your IP address and can't immediately send a reinfection packet. So the, the better advice is, you know, check with your device manufacturer, make sure you have the latest firmware and do a factory reset and install the latest factory firmware. Another interesting aspect of this attack is, is a lot of times we end up identifying attacks based on a specific vulnerability, right? Some, you know, some backdoor in a lot of devices or, uh, you know, a, a bug that lets you remote get, gain remote execution privileges in some piece of software. Here, researchers still don't really know precisely how the devices are getting infected, but almost all of the targeted devices have known public exploits or default credentials that make compromise straightforward. So instead of identifying it based on you know individual exploits or or holes, what's what's unique about it is that they're they're all being controlled by a common source. That that's what makes it uh, a cohesive piece. And it's it's instead of being individual vulnerabilities, it's really a concentrated effort on attack of whoever these attackers may be. So. They're not really sure we have a subset of devices that may be uh, infected. It seems like really anything that has, you know, Linux firmware or BusyBox could be. But if you've got anything common from from Microtech, a router OS box, if you've got some Linksys routers, Netgear routers, QNAP devices, some TP-Link routers, go check out the show notes. You can go see a list of the defective devices that people are, are aware of currently. And whatever you have, go make sure you're up to date. And it's just a general reminder that these little tiny router boxes tend to just suck and get neglected. A rather large telecom in Southeast Asia had a little snafu with the router they've deployed for all of their customers. Yeah, that's right. Singapore Telecommunications Limited left approximately 1,000 customer routers wide open to a potential attack via an unprotected port. The root cause was that port forwarding was enabled by Singtel customer service to troubleshoot Wi-Fi issues for their customers. And unfortunately, it was not disabled when the issues were resolved. New Sky Security alerted the region's Singapore Computer Emergency Response Team, or SingCert. They worked with Singapore Telecommunications to resolve the issue. The researchers identified the impacted routers as part of Singtel's own branded Wi-Fi gigabyte routers. What makes that important is that once researchers connected to the port, there was no authentication. They observed that, that anyone could get complete access to those devices, no credentials required. These little devices are a challenge because they're sophisticated little computers that are connected to the internet on the edge. So they're particularly hard to watch and they're particularly exposed. And in the case of this recent uh, VPN filter, researchers are not completely clear on how it's infecting all of these devices. You know, just last week, Comcast patched a bug that under certain conditions leaked customers' SSID names and passwords of the Xfinity routers. So they have to stay on top of this stuff. And I think maybe just a good principle for security hygiene is if your router and any of your edge devices are not getting current updates, it's time to move to something else. If you're a technical user who's capable of managing your own firmware and can stay on top of it, 
okay, that's great. Uh, I'm sure you know who you are, but but for everyone else, you, this is this is too important. We can't keep living in the days of oh, I bought this router at the store. I'll install it and forget about it. Never even log into the admin interface. That just that's just not going to work in the security world of 2018. So it really behooves manufacturers, service providers, if you're going to be managing consumer end devices. You got to take that stuff seriously. You got to have better hygiene and you got to make sure you can supply updates in a timely fashion. Dio.co slash snap. Digital Ocean is infrastructure that you can deploy in less than 55 seconds all over the world. You can build better apps faster with DigitalOcean. If you want a base Linux system or FreeBSD system or the entire stack, you can deploy it within seconds. And when you go to Dio.co slash snap, you'll get $100 credit for 60 days. A $100 credit. Yeah, that's right. My favorite rig is just three cents an hour. Everything is SSDs. 40 gigabit connections coming into the hypervisor. Super fast systems. Predictable pricing, industry leading performance, and all kinds of optimized droplet compute types. So if you have a special application need, they have lots of different custom droplet types. They also have a new mix and match droplet where you can mix and match the resources you need. And then they provide things like cloud firewalls. So they filter traffic at the network level. They have a 99.99% uptime SLA. They have easy, simple, straightforward DNS management, alerting and monitoring built in. And like I said, data centers all over the world. They wrap that all up with an easy-to-use API and a beautiful, simple, straightforward, you might even say, dashboard for days over at DigitalOcean. And I just found a new project because of this API I just mentioned. People are writing open source code like crazy for DigitalOcean. And I found something called Droplet Cache. Yeah, it's turning DigitalOcean's super fast SSDs into a cache. This is so cool. If you need to distribute some live streams or you have files you want to get to users all around the world at scale with DigitalOcean speed, you can take advantage of this project called Droplet Cache. Go to their community section to get more information on that, but get started by going to do.co slash snap. Then you grab Droplet Cache, you get $100 of credit, and you could build a CDN for quite a while and test it out and see if it works for you. And you can probably do it within minutes. That's the power of DigitalOcean. Do.co slash snap. Thanks for going to techsnap.system slash contact to send us your questions or your war stories. Yeah, we got another one in here from Dave, and it made me smile again. He says, the first build machine for FreeBSD was ref.tfs.com. Before FreeBSD 1.0 was released, and for a while afterward, it lived there. It was housed in one of the labs at a former employer. I was one of a handful of people who knew about its secret hosting setup, and which was not really known by most people, including upper management. This is probably around 1993 or 1994. Dave goes on to say that once in a while he'd get a call to kick ref in the head, as it would, uh, you know, get stuck on occasion. He was the first line of contact, but more than a few times, he went down there to reboot it, and make sure that everything had come up clean. During one of those downtimes, he decided it would be a good moment to reroute some power cables, as it had obviously been installed by a software guy, probably Julian or Rodney. At any rate, I managed to accidentally unplug an external disk array, which was connected to a Sun server, which brought a rather large European bank project down. Turns out it was connected by a three-power strip daisy chain. 
which is not exactly best practice. I hadn't realized what had happened until we were in a rather heated meeting with our sysadmin group. Some folks thought it was a power glitch, some folks thought it was sabotage, and everyone was angry. I decided to hold back instead of speaking the truth, which of course (laughs) is that that server is that important. Maybe take a couple of extra minutes and route the power cables properly. That's why I have these things called extension cords after all, or handy power outlets just below the raised floor. I never copped to it because by the time I realized I had done it, things were blown way out of proportion and nobody would have believed I hadn't done it intentionally. Did I feel bad about it? Nah, it wasn't one of our older Sun OS boxes that was based on BSD. It was one of those newer Solaris boxes based on System V. Good riddance. (laughs) Thank you, Dave. That is a great story. Someone definitely not Frank, has written to us. Hey, thought I would share my horror story. I worked as a help desk technician for a medium-sized manufacturing company. My supervisor, let's call him Stan, told me that his boss, let's call him Frank, was going to travel to our location for a week. Now, Frank wanted to help us streamline our processes and install some new equipment. Around 3 p.m., I saw Frank and Stan sitting in front of the production mail server. Frank was going on and on to Stan about how he knew all the tricks to get the best performance out of that there Windows server. However, when I got in next morning, I saw Frank and Stan still standing in front of that server. Stan told me that they'd been there all night. It turned out that Frank's quote-unquote trick to get the best performance was to delete a bunch of random files from the Windows and System32 folders. Frank had sunk a mail server that hosted over a thousand active accounts. They spent the whole night rebuilding the OS and restoring the mail server from backups. Hey, good job having backups. That's a, that's a silver lining here. We quickly figured out that Frank was a giant idiot. He spent the whole week wrecking havoc on our systems. It took months to undo the mess he made. After that, when Frank showed up, we went out of our way to make sure he didn't touch anything. Isn't that an interesting experience when you're working with somebody, maybe they're new or they're from another company and it's just a temporary thing and you start working with them and you realize that they don't have any idea what they're doing and this this feeling of dread, this, oh no, this person's an idiot, <laughs> sinks yeah, in. <laughs> right, and it's often those people that they think they know or they know en- just enough to be dangerous. It's also, yeah. I think, a good lesson to management that, you know, if, you, if you'd hired someone with expertise, if you have people on staff that know what they're doing, just delegate. Your job is to delegate to the proper experts. Yeah. Yep. Well said. Thank you guys for sending those in. If you want to send in a war story, you have a question for us, techsnap.systems slash contact. Links to anything we talked about today also, including these emails, if you want to read them for yourself, techsnap.systems slash 370. That brings us to the end of this week's program. If you'd like to find the next episode, all you have to do is go over to techsnap.systems slash subscribe. Yeah, now might be a better time than ever on the road down to Texas while I'm at Linux Fest and on the road back. The schedule is going to shift around a little bit as windows of connectivity and non-driving time open. Plus, then you have to factor editing time in. So the release might float a little bit. We're going to try to do one every single week. But the best way just to get it, like Wes said, is to go to the subscribe page. And if you want to just plug it into your RSS catcher directly, 
It's just techsnap.systems/rss. You can just put that directly into your catcher, and it'll subscribe as well. I'm at Chris Las on the Twitter, and what are you? I'm at West Payne. You maniac, and the whole network is at Jupiter Signal. Thanks so much for tuning in this week's episode of the TechSnap program. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.